it's uh, a delight to again uh, be able to uh, work through the book of Romans with you. Uh, it's not quite as delightful as it would be if we were uh, physically together, uh, Lord willing, uh, soon. Again, we're, uh, we're in communication with both the SDA and uh, keeping an eye on the uh, government regs and uh, numbers. And uh, please pray uh, that uh, these things would come together uh, in a timely fashion so that we can be physically gathered together in short order. We are moving into uh, chapter 6 of Romans this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4, 1 being a, an incredibly famous passage and theme throughout uh, Pauline literature and certainly uh, a, a core uh, to the book of Romans. The, uh, the question this Advent season is really, uh, why should we be hopeful? Uh, what are, is the motivation? What is the foundation for our hope? We could say broadly uh, that it's in Jesus, but, but what do we mean? What are we looking forward to when we say we were hopeful this Advent season? Is it uh, the idea that, uh, you know, on the whole, people are getting better? There's a, a notion out there, often uh, encouraged by folks who are uh, devotees of the Enlightenment and uh, optimistic about secular humanism's ability to perfect humanity that would suggest that that we are uh, we're getting better as people. We should be hopeful because uh, statistics indicate that we're a lot less likely to be killed in warfare or be murdered than uh, those who lived a hundred, two hundred, a thousand years ago when uh, villages would regularly uh, redistribute wealth uh, at the point of a sword. They go over and take uh, their neighbor's uh, grain. Uh, wars were uh, pretty common. There's that both uh, tragic and uh, powerful passage uh, in Samuel, Second Samuel, where uh, right before David's fall, we are warned uh, that something's about to go wrong because the passage says, in the spring when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. There are there's both the warning that David wasn't doing his job, but also just this sense of normalcy that, that it was a season when we just expected in the spring to go out and fight someone. Thankfully, we don't really have that expectation anymore. We are hopeful uh, that we can avoid wars, uh, that uh, we don't want to see people uh, killed because uh, they are weaker or they are vulnerable to those who are stronger. But the challenge is that uh, there are a lot of indications that we're really just different. Uh, we're not really better. We just find different ways to sin and kill each other because we all know that if we were to do the math uh, on uh, the death of human beings and added in abortion, we would realize that maybe humanity hasn't become that much more pro-life than it's been in the past, that some areas are better, but others are worse. And of course, the great tragedy of the exporting of abortion around the world is that the most likely person to be aborted is now uh, a girl child of color, uh, a woman of color, um, because of multiple cultural reasons. Um, there is still uh, way too much of an, a human addiction to uh, death uh, when it is convenient for me. Uh, and so I don't know that we can really be helpful, uh, hopeful that human beings are basically becoming more moral, even though in many ways 
uh, the ethics of the kingdom of God have greatly impacted uh, many, many people around the world. But it hasn't changed the human heart in and of itself. And some of us may be saying, well, uh, it's not better, it's getting worse, but at least Jesus is coming back. That no, human beings aren't getting better, that the world itself isn't really improving at all, morally or ethically. But every day we live is another day closer to Jesus returning and uh, Jesus setting it all right. And so it isn't really a hope that we can do anything in and through this world. It's just the hope that each day uh, puts us closer to the return. These uh, competing views, neither one of them are terribly hopeful. Uh, one denies the fundamental need for human beings' transformation apart from their own ability because human beings seem caught in a rather cyclical uh, uh, lifestyle of uh, wanting to be generous, but at the same time finding the fears and necessities of life causing them to be uh, far more uh, interested in their own existence than the existence of others. And uh, the idea of tossing it all in and just praying that some point Jesus comes back doesn't really give us much hope to get out of bed or much hope to love our neighbor as ourselves. So as we read this morning, what is Paul's hope? And as we translate that into Advent, what is Paul's hope for not just the return of Christ, but the power of Christ in and through the world even today? How is the kingdom already been Advented uh, in the life of Christ? So let's look at the text, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Please follow along with me if you have your Bibles open. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be hopeful, we would be encouraged, but we would also be mindful of the power, uh, even in its death throes, even in its defeat of sin and death. We pray, Lord, that we might be wise as we look at the world. We might be wise as we discern our own hearts. But in all things, Lord, may we be hopeful in the power of the Spirit that transforms and enlivens each one, that we might see and know clearly the glory and the power of our God. And everything that is said this morning, may it be beneficial and useful for seeing and hearing the good news of the gospel. And anything that leads your people astray, Lord, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we have in these very short verses uh, a powerful explanation of Paul's hope for the Christian through the work of Christ and an answer to or a repetition of God's redemptive history, God's redemptive actions. Uh, this is a passage that reminds us that we have a God who is faithful, who redeems the dead, who redeems the slaves. 
and makes them free. The tenor, the tone of Paul's language here, both in chapter 5 and in 6, has had this covenantal, we've talked about, covenantal uh, underpinning, this expectation that what we were seeing was the culmination of all of the promises to Abraham, all of the promises made to God's people that God had been faithful to his covenant to bring a Messiah, to bring one who would redeem his people. And so it's not surprising that what we have here is a continuation of that exodus and redemption theme. We've already talked about Abraham and the promises made to his people. We've been affirmed that in uh, Adam, that we had the problem of sin and that in Christ, we have the greater solution coming from the creator himself and yet putting himself in the uh, in creation as a human. And so we come now to the question of since there's been so much grace, since God through uh, Christ has undone the sin of Adam, and since in the midst of all of that sin, we see the power and the greatness of God's grace, the human mind often goes to the place where Well, if God's grace is shown in its ability to forgive great things, is there not then an upside uh, to showing how great God's grace is by continuing to sin? And Paul addresses that sin of uh, complacency directly. How does this come about in our thoughts today? I would suggest that uh, we are not uh, to use the term, we are all just sinners too lightly. It is uh, not uncommon uh, in the face of being confronted with my own sin or the revelation of my own sin by a brother or sister in Christ, that that temptation, that phraseology of, well, we're all just sinners. Uh, God loves sinners. He meets us right where we are. This idea that uh, we are not expecting sanctification, this side of glory, that we are to be accepted in our sinful state. A couple of the commentaries drew connection back to the younger son in the parable of the two lost sons, uh, as if uh, it would be a little bit, well, shocking if the younger son, a couple of years down the road after having had the big party, and having the fattened calf uh, given to him uh, was getting a little bored in just being a good son and wondered if it wasn't time again to ask his dad for his inheritance so he could go off again and party, especially now that he knew that he would always be welcomed home. We always find that, of course, in an illustration like that, fundamentally offensive. And Paul is saying that it would be uncharacteristic. The expectation is that the son with the cloak and the ring knew his identity had been transformed, had been renewed. It is true that we are all sinners. It is true that we are to engage, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, with the spirit of love, and that love covers a multitude of sins. But that is not the same as allowing one another to believe that we are still slaves 
that we are still dead in our trespasses. And that's where Paul moves. Paul moves from condoning sin and the idea that somehow we could exist uh, as both those who are in Christ and yet willfully and purposely sinning to increase God's grace and our own enjoyment. Paul wants to say, no, the problem is that's incongruent with who and what you now are. Verse 2, we died to sin. Our old self died, and we became something new. The imagery here, because uh, it utilizes Exodus imagery uh, that comes from uh, not only the book of Exodus, but from John the Baptist's own ministry in baptizing people in the Jordan River, that we are reminded that it was hard for Israel, but Israel was supposed to understand according to uh, scripture, that when they passed through the Red Sea, their identity as slaves was transformed into an identity of those who had been set free. They died to an old identity. God changed it because of his act of redemption. And the challenge they faced, of course, as we read through Exodus, is that they kept thinking of themselves as slaves. As our confession of sin talked about this morning, they idealized their past. Let us go back. At least we had pots of meat. Chances are that was not the clearest recollection of their time in Egypt. We died to sin. That old self is dead. And then in the spirit of Exodus, it's not just the Red Sea that moves them from slave to free, but it's the crossing of the Jordan River, which, again, the ministry of John the Baptist so powerfully illustrates, moves us from exile into promised land. See, John the Baptist's ministry was baptizing people in the Jordan River in preparation for a journey into the promised land. The expectation was that we move out of exile into the land that was always promised, into the freedom and the rest, the milk and honey, the houses we didn't build, the, the vineyards we don't plant. And yet in the grace of God, they're all given that we might delight and be at peace in them. We died to the notion that we are people aimlessly walking about. We die to the notion that we are slaves. We die to all the things that the enemy and our own hearts would tell us are true about our former selves. Paul's going to unpack this in chapter 7. He's going to unpack it more in chapter 8 as he wrestles with the uh, implications of the law, as he wrestles with his own heart rest, uh, that knows what it wants to do, and yet struggles with the muscle memory, the ability, the strength to do it. But Paul's assumption is not that he is a sinner trying not to sin, but that he is a redeemed and new creation struggling with the old habits of the old self. Dying sometimes takes time dying to those old ideas, apparently 
takes regular recognition and remembering of the faithfulness of God. It's why we see throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, the telling of the story over and over and over again of God redeeming his people out of the hand of slavery, walking them through to the, uh, the Red Sea, taking them to Mount Sinai, leading them then through the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. So we are not simply just sinners. We're not supposed to uh, accommodate or excuse one another's sins because we are all just sinners. But according to Paul, we died to that reality. How did we die? Well, this is the great wonder of baptism, uh, because it wasn't just that uh, folks walked through uh, the Red Sea or across the Jordan River, and they walked through on dry land. But according to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul understands and encourages us to see that as a baptism. One can imagine that there might have been a little spray off of the walls of water on either side. Uh, but whatever the imagery and whatever the reality is, the imagery, sorry, is that they were baptized, that they died and they rose. That our understanding, and it's also true in Scripture, that baptism is a washing, there is also the imagery of baptism as a burial and a coming through into new life. It is, again, that imagery that the sea was the place of chaos and that the dry land is formed out of the sea and that human beings are formed on dry land out of the dry land itself. And to go through the waters is to be recreated and remade, to die to what was old and to be born into what is new. Isaiah 63.10 uh, says this in powerful language, 63 10 through 14. I want to read this just because it's a wonderful excuse to read Isaiah. But they rebelled, speaking of God's people, and grieved his Holy Spirit. Just think about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and how excited Paul must have been having memorized Isaiah 63 and now being mindful of the Holy Spirit enlivening his people. But they rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned into their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is, he, uh, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, eternal life, who led them through the deep. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Baptism, then, is really and truly a rebirth. It is a death to the old identity. It is a death 
to the power of sin over us. It is a death to death itself. We come out the other side of baptism, according to Paul, as new creations in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that baptism is by nature somehow magical? No. It does reaffirm, though, that Paul has a pretty high view of what happens and what God does to his people in baptism. It's not what I do. It's not what any pastor does or whoever baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't do anything. But apparently God does. He acts in and through that normal means of grace. It is humbling in and of itself that we are not the ones who fix us. It is not even our phrase, dear Lord, come into my heart. It is a connection with what God does in baptism. And I press in this a little bit because it is in the midst of our culture, which desires, again, to put so much emphasis on what we do, to be reminded that our, res- our death and resurrection comes through the work of Christ. It is through his action in baptism that we are brought into a newness of life. It is through the depths that he brings us through that we find life, depths that we could not escape on our own. We can't fix death. We can't wish our sins away. We needed a new life and a new body. And we're promised that, according to Paul, through baptism. Is it the only way? Is God somehow limited? Certainly not. But it is a reminder that when we struggle, when we find ourselves wondering if our own hearts are strong enough, it's why historically the church has encouraged believers to pray their baptism back to God, to remember that day when God brought them from death into life, when they were baptized into Christ's death, a death to death itself, a death that would defeat death, Jesus' death was not just a random death. It wasn't an embracing of the cycle of life. It was a death that defeated death, that it is the death. And we all know the pictures in those movies uh, where the hero jumps into whatever large animal is trying to destroy the creek, destroy our heroes, and they come out the other side. The animal thinks it's one because it ate the, the hero. And then the hero comes out having killed the enemy from the inside out. That is a poor example of what Jesus does. Jesus goes into death and from the inside destroys it, defeats it. And so we die a death to death itself so that death has no hold on us. Being baptized into Jesus's death is not the same as being a part of a group that heroically is martyred, and we all die together, and there's a sense in which we all share the same death. No, no, this is a transcendent and infinite and eternal defeat of the power of death itself. There is no other hope than to be baptized into the death of Jesus, because to be baptized in the death of Jesus means that we are then raised with him. That symbolism then of walking out of the deep, the land that uh, the children of Israel walked through as they walked out of the Red Sea, as they came out of the riverbed at the Jordan River. 
They walk out of the depths up onto dry land, up onto the land that would always be dry, that would always be nurturing, that was life itself. Jesus works his power through us being joined to him by the Spirit in our baptism. So taking Paul's words and reflecting on why we should be hopeful this Advent season, why should we be hopeful? Well, because you're a new creation. You may not feel it. You may uh, at various times think there's not much difference from you uh, before you were baptized. Some of you may not remember your baptism, baptized as children. Some of us remember our baptisms and aren't always sure uh, that there's much difference. But again, uh, my old phrase, all feelings are real, but not all feelings are true. You really may feel like your old self, but the truth is that you are a new creation. Be hopeful in the reality that you are a new creation in Christ, because that's what God's word says about you. And if you're struggling to remember what day that happened, my encouragement is for you to, again, if you're a child, ask your parents about your baptism day, about the promises that were made, about the promises God made to you. But not only are we new creations, we are enlivened by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that was grieved in Isaiah is now living in and through you. Because of what Christ has done, God now makes his dwelling not just among people in general, but in your own heart and in my heart. We have an enlivening power that the Old Testament saints knew of, but could not imagine would dwell individually in the way that Pentecost fulfills. It was more than they could have possibly hoped or imagined. And so we are hopeful because we're a new creation and because we have the Holy Spirit. These are Paul's assurances to us. This is the basis on which Paul bothers to wrestle with his sins and to fight against them. And why it's, it is so abhorrent to imagine that in this new creation space, we would simply uh, give in to and pander to our old ways and our old addictions to sin and death. Couple of questions uh, to chew on, perhaps uh, in the days or minutes or hours after the service. Uh, what do you do each day that affirms that you are a new creation? What do you do each day? Perhaps you start your morning uh, with a particular pattern, but what are you doing to reaffirm that you are a new creation? We can all go to bed a little overwhelmed at the end of the day perhaps doubting that we are. Uh, how do you start your day that reaffirms that you are a new creation, re reaffirms what is true? What are you doing that perpetuates the lie that you're still a slave to sin, that you're still dead in your trespasses? There are compromises and detente that we often have with our sins, with our brokenness and with our temptations that simply tell us we're not strong enough, that uh, this side of glory will never see victory over those sins, those tendencies, those weaknesses, that past. 
So what are you doing that perpetuates the lie that you're still a slave to sin? Turn the light on. It will lose its power. Uh, you need to recognize the ways in which and pray for the spirit that you're lying to yourself or that your culture lies to you. Or that perhaps even tragically, sometimes people around you are not giving a good encouragement as to the new creation uh, and the new opportunity you have to die to sin and live for Christ. And then finally, uh, what do you do that treats other believers as redeemed sinners? That is to say, how do we treat one another? Do we treat one another with that expectation that we are new creations? Or do we inadvertently give up and just allow the idea that we're just sinners to be the excuse, uh, the escape clause for treating one another with the respect and the hope and the glory and the expectation that our brother or our sister is not condemned to slavery and death in the sin that is eating away at them, that's denying them the freedom that they have in Christ. In what ways do we treat one another as believers, as those who have the hope of new life? In what ways are we inadvertently treating one another as hopeless sinners who have no hope this side of glory? of seeing the goodness of God in the land of the living. One more time. What do you do each day that affirms that you are a new creation? Call out and uh, recognize, turn the light on, on those lies that are perpetuating the idea that you're still a slave to sin. And then how do those two realities in our own existence impact the way we love one another? recognizing the new creation in our brother, our sister, our child, our father, our mother. And in what ways have we or are we inadvertently condemning folks to being powerless against the sin by supporting an idea that there's no transformation in Christ? We have an opportunity to be hopeful this Advent season because the reality is that in Christ, many good things are happening. And that as we head towards his return, we can hope to see good and life spread. That death and sin will fight against us. But that the one who is in us is greater than the defeated one who is in the world. We can be hopeful even as we grieve, even as we struggle, even as we walk through a valley of the shadow of death. We know that he is the one who is making all places level and plain, that we might go up, that we might stand in the presence of our holy, gracious, and life-giving God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what baptism tells us about what you're doing in and through us by the Holy Spirit. We know that it's not the water, it is the work of God. Bringing that which is dead, that which was a slave to death, into life. Thank you for your patience as we learn what this means. 
May we be patient with one another, but may we always share the hope of life and the truth that we are moving in and through this world, which you are transforming, where we are surely exiles. But Lord, in the way that only you can, it is already becoming our home. That is because you are building your kingdom through your spirit by your people. May that life and light extend to all around us. In Christ's name, amen.